Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 929 The Game. Grant McCauley with you as always as we close out the weekend. And the Braves close out their road trip against the Cincinnati Reds. A whole lot has been going on at Great American Ballpark. And my goodness, I don't know that we've had anything up there that has remotely resembled peace and quiet. It has been exciting, exhilarating, exhausting series against Cincinnati. But I think one of the fun times of the year where you may have looked at this when the teams opened their schedule for the year and thought, oh, Braves and Reds, not really going to be anything too sexy about that matchup. It's just Great American Ballpark could get weird, but... That's about all the intrigue that there is. And let me tell you, if that's how you felt a couple of months ago, it ain't how we were feeling when the Braves rolled into Cincinnati to continue their road trip. And the Reds, a red-hot team, winners of 12 in a row, had their win streak snapped on Saturday. But they're showing there's a lot of fight in this club, and there's a lot of season left to be played. And I think the NL Central is going to be a pretty interesting race from top to bottom. It's a lot different than we thought it was going to be. And that's something we're going to talk about quite a bit on this show, but I'll get to that a little bit later. As always, we appreciate you tuning in to From the Diamond here on 92.9 The Game. You can find the show live here on Sundays, mostly from 5 to 7. You can also find it on the Odyssey app, and you can always subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. You can find it there. You can find me on social media, at Grant McCauley on both Twitter and Instagram. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end on Twitter and at From the Diamond on Instagram. You can also like the show on Facebook and go to FromTheDiamond.com where you'll find links to all those things I just laid out here. But as far as laying things out, the Braves have certainly been doing that here in the month of June. One of the hottest teams in baseball, and I don't know that it's altogether surprising considering that the Braves were and have been all season long a first-place club, and they've been expected to be a first-place club. But again, to kind of go back on what I opened the show with, you weren't expecting the Cincinnati Reds to be a first-place club this deep into the season, I don't think. And I don't think the Cincinnati Reds were necessarily thinking that this was how we drew it up. Now, they're happy they got there, I can tell you that. And they've got a lot of excitement in the way that they play baseball. And the way that they run the bases, it's a tough batting order. They don't, I think, have the pitching quite figured out just yet. Getting Hunter Green back from the injured list could go a long way towards kind of helping out in that regard. But when you reel off a 12-game winning streak, you have the possibility, I think, of turning the whole complexity of your season around. Let's flash back to a year ago. The Braves were a sub-500 club heading into Memorial Day weekend, got walked off by the Arizona Diamondbacks, and had a closed-door meeting to try to figure out how to get themselves rolling. Well, then they went out and won a baseball game. And then they won 13 more after that. So a 14-game winning streak turned the Braves' chances around last year. 12-game winning streak for the Cincinnati club has done the same thing. And it's just made this a much more intriguing, much more fun weekend, getting a look at not only Ronald Acuna Jr., one of the most exciting players in all of baseball, who takes the field every day for the Braves, but how about this Ellie De La Cruz kid? I mean, the term phenom, I think, gets thrown around maybe a little bit more than it probably should. But when you look at the build of this kid, the makeup of this kid, the tools that he has, 
this is a phenom. And this is a guy that I, I tweeted out the other day when he hit for the cycle in his first four bats of the series. He's going to be a monster. And some people are like, he's going to be. He already is. Well, all I need to see is the numbers to back it up. I mean, now we're projecting monster. He looks like a monster, but then you got to go out there and play the part. And I'm not doubting that he could go out there and play the part. I mean, he's looked awfully good in his brief time in the big leagues. But as we know, Major League Baseball has a way of making adjustments. Then as a young player, how do you adjust to those adjustments? Because this is the game of adjustments and also a game of failure. You've got to learn how to deal with that. I don't know that a lot of top prospects, especially guys who you know go by the nickname Phenom or get called a Phenom, have to deal with too much failure on their way up the minor league system. Usually you're the best player in your league you know, and the best player on the field every single night if you're using that distinction as a Phenom, and I think De La Cruz is certainly that. Ron Lacuna was certainly that on his way up the minor league chain, especially in 2017 when the Rocket really got strapped to him and he ascended to the major leagues and in 2018 was the rookie of the year. I don't know how it's going to play out for De La Cruz, but I know I've had an awful lot of fun watching what has been a much more intriguing series than it maybe had any business being. And this comes on the tail end of the Braves taking an abbreviated two-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies, which pushed Atlanta's winning streak to eight in a row. Now, that was snapped on Friday in Cincinnati. But two teams that can come in with those kinds of streaks heading off against one another, we knew somebody was going to lose their streak. Well, it was the Braves first, then the Reds. But either way, again, it's been a very fun weekend. But that series in Philly, I think, was important for a number of different reasons that we're going to get to on today's show because – you needed to see first and foremost in that very first game of that series, and you know, putting the rain out aside because clearly that's not something that the Braves want, but what was Spencer Strider going to be able to do to bounce back from two of the worst starts of his career against first the Mets and then against the Detroit Tigers where he's just getting bombed, a lot of home run balls. Very un-Spencer Strider-like was what I called it a week ago, and it in fact was very un-Spencer Strider-like. And as I looked at what was going on in Philadelphia – he was able to make some serious adjustments. And what were they? A little more velocity, but I think pitch execution. We're going to hear from Spencer Strider later in the show about what he felt like was the difference maker for him in that start against the Philadelphia Phillies. Then the rainout came along. Then the Braves were able to win an extra inning game with five runs in the 10th inning on another night, or another afternoon, I should say, that Bryce Elder went out there and dealt for you. We're going to get into what's going on with Bryce Elder this year that maybe has him going somewhere we didn't think he was going to go. And that, of course, spoiler alert, might be the all-star game, the way this kid's pitched. I mean, he has been the most effective and most efficient and most consistent starting pitcher that the Braves have had all season long. And that's with all due respect to Spencer Strider because, as we just talked about, he's had some peaks certainly this year. He's also had some valleys. And so I think that what Bryce Elder has done, not just coming in, being the team's fifth starter, and when you're down a couple of pitchers the way the Braves are, an all-star like Max Fried, a Cy Young Award runner-up, 20-game winner Kyle Wright, Ian Anderson lost to Tommy John surgery. Not that he was really in the plans from opening day, but you get my drift. Somebody had to step in here, and Bryce Elder's more than stepped in, and he's impressed everybody. And he's done it with an arsenal that doesn't necessarily grade out as like the plus stuff that you see for, let's say, a Spencer Strider. It's not dominating a lineup, but he has confounded teams. And he, the latest was the Philadelphia Phillies because he's cutting the ball, sinking the ball, using a great slider and missing enough bats and getting enough weak contact to just navigate himself typically into the sixth inning and beyond every single time that he takes the ball. And that kind of consistency is exactly what the Braves needed in order to try to get themselves right in rotation. And getting right in rotation means you can get right in the bullpen. As we talked about a week ago on the show, the Atlanta bullpen has been far better lately than it was for a good portion of the month of May. And I think that the bullpen games that played a big part in that, and obviously starters not going deep enough in games, was also compounding but now you're starting to see some arms that are at least showing you more times than not that they are who you hope that they would be 
whether it's A.J. Minter or Joe Jimenez, Kirby Yates has also stepped in. I think things have been a little rocky for Rysel Iglesias you know, here and there, and you know it's kind of part of the job with a closer. You're going to wear a few. You're going to blow a few, but it doesn't necessarily take away from the job. The next time you go out there, you're going to have a pretty short memory, and I think that goes for just about any relief pitcher, but you know this has been one of the better bullpens in baseball here in the month of June, and that's a big reason for the Braves' success, but I don't want to bury the lead altogether for why the Braves are who we expected them to be. It's the offense. One through nine in this order, it's starting to look like things are clicking in the way that you thought and or hoped that they would this year, just building off of what they accomplished a season ago. As I talked about on last week's show, I mean, they're on pace to absolutely shatter the team's home run record for a single season. I mean, this could push 275 or more home runs out of this club. They could lead Major League Baseball. They are right now, so that's a pretty easy statement there. They were the highest-scoring team in the National League as of this weekend against Cincinnati as well. That's a pretty big deal. Helps your pitching staff out a lot when you got a lot of runs to work with, and the Braves' offense has been doing its part in that regard. But it starts with Ronald Acuna Jr., and then it goes on down that one through nine after him, and it just continues to not let up and not give any opposing pitcher an opportunity to say, well, if I can just get past Austin Riley, or if I can just get past Matt Olson here, if I could just get Ozzie Albies, well, then what? Well, then you got one of these other guys I'm talking about, then Marcelo Zuna, Eddie Rosario, Michael Harris have all suddenly hit their stride over the last six weeks. Uh, you've got that catching tandem of Travis Darno and Sean Murphy, which, by the way, good to see Sean Murphy back in there on a Sunday. He's got all-star credentials as well this year, having a career year. And just very quietly, everybody is now doing their part. And that is what is helping the Braves to do the kind of winning that they're doing, to go sweep a series in Philadelphia. Yeah, we're going to have to play that third game a little bit later on in September as part of a doubleheader because of the rainout. But you won both of those games. And then you went into Cincinnati and took two out of three from an extremely tough Reds team, an extremely hot Reds team. And this was one-run games. I think every game in the season series so far has been a one-run game. The same thing again on Sunday as the Braves were able to pick up a 7-6 victory. You know, it's just about coming down to the last out on both sides. I mean, you look at that crazy 11-10 game that the Reds beat the Braves in the opener. De La Cruz hitting for the cycle. The Braves hit four home runs, I believe, five home runs. The Reds hit four or five home runs. Then you do it again on Saturday. There just weren't as many walks for Braves pitchers, which go ahead and wipe the proverbial sweat away from your forehead because that's a relief, no pun intended. Can't give teams extra base runners, can't give them extra outs. I mean, we saw what happened when the Phillies gave the Braves an extra out in the finale of that one on uh, Wednesday. Kyle Schwarber did not make the play that uh, most left fielders would be able to make. By the way, that was scored a base hit initially and got changed to an error. I had a little bit of discourse about that on Twitter, which, again, you can follow me at Grant McCauley. I'm not saying that it wasn't a bad play, a misplay, but if you leave your feet as an outfielder, typically it's going to be scored a hit. I don't know. There's a lot of semantics in this. Major League Baseball wanted it changed. I think it's the Phillies petition the league, and the league decides that, hey, you know what, we'll change that. Save some earned runs for the pitcher. It doesn't take the win away from the Braves, but it does take a hit and two RBIs away from Austin Riley. And I guess I say that to say, think about all the times that somebody hits the ball hard and has nothing to show for it. Well, that time he hit the ball pretty hard, and somebody should have made a play, but they didn't. And you wouldn't have something to show for it, but you don't. But if you ask Austin Riley, if you ask any member of the Atlanta Braves, they don't really care what the box score looks like as long as that run column says Braves more than the other team. And that's what we've seen on this road trip as Atlanta goes out and goes 4-1 and one against the Philadelphia Phillies and the Cincinnati Reds to just continue its role and to be exactly where it wants to be as a club in first place, six games up. On the Miami Marlins, who were the surprise second-place team, we'll talk about that more later on the show. But as I mentioned, and as I just kind of talked about, and there's a lot to get to with this, with this Reds team 
And with some of the other clubs in the NL Central, it's going to be a pretty intriguing summer. I'm going to have Matt Snyder of CBS Sports join me a little bit later on in the show in the second hour, and we're going to break down what exactly has been going on in that divisional race because unlike the NL East, which you know is pretty straightforward and has at least one of the clubs you expected in first place, maybe the Mets aren't who you expected them to be thus far this year, but that's a, again another story. This NL Central, it has my attention, and the Reds most certainly have my attention. I think they have the attention of most Braves fans. we got a lot to get to on today's show. When we come back, we will continue on in talking about what happened in the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, some of the biggest storylines for this club. We'll wrap up things as they close down in Cincinnati on Sunday with the Braves taking two out of three from the Red Hot Reds. And we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you as always. Appreciate you joining me on another weekend as we wrap things up for the Braves. A very profitable weekend, very profitable road trip for this Atlanta club as well. We saw the series win in Philadelphia, and now we see a series win in Cincinnati as the Braves were able to go toe-to-toe with, the I think, the hottest team in baseball. The Braves were one of them, but goodness gracious. If the Reds are having their longest winning streak in, if my math is correct, 66 years, uh, that is a pretty good indicator that you're doing some things right. I think one of the most fun stats or fun facts that I've heard about that, I talked about this on the Locked On Sports Atlanta Braves postcast, shameless plug, a few days ago. You had Gus Bell, the grandfather of David Bell, the manager of the Reds. Well, he was playing for Cincinnati in 1957, the last time the Reds won 12 games in a row. Now, that came to an end on Saturday when the Braves upended them for the first of two times this weekend. But that just goes to show you, it had been a while, and it surprised the heck out of me that the Big Red Machine didn't have a 12-plus game winning streak. But, you know, they won a couple of World Series. I'd think that they'll trade the commissioner's trophy uh, for the long winning streaks. Nonetheless, the Reds have, I think, a lot to prove this year, but they've already proven a lot to people, including the Braves, over the course of the weekend. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that went right in Cincinnati, and I don't know that it went righter, if that's the word, for one guy more so than it did for Matt Olson. Another home run on Sunday. He matched Shohei Otani with that long ball for the most in Major League Baseball. I think about three or four weeks ago, I had my mentions were crawling with folks that, and I understand it. I mean, look at the production. There's a case to be made. You know, how is Matt Olson? You know, why didn't he get a day off? How is he batting second? You know, the lineup needs to be shuffled, and it was. That was something I do think needed to be done. I don't really feel like a bunch of days off for Matt Olson or trying out other people at first base or platooning him or, or whatever else was maybe suggested. Maybe not. Uh, maybe it's some fan fiction. I don't know. But. You knew he was going to get right at some point. And talking to Matt, I mean, he just has that even-keeled approach to things. And I think that's something that he probably already had a little bit. But it's also part of how the Braves go about their daily business. And we're going to talk a lot about that a little bit later this hour. I wrote a piece for the Marietta Daily Journal you might have seen a couple of days ago. It came out on Friday, I believe, online. It was in the paper yesterday. If you want to get a hard copy of that, we always appreciate that. But it was about the winning culture that the Braves have created and how so many other teams are trying to find that portion of it. I mean, you're going out trying to build a winner on the field. So how do you build a winner behind the scenes? The Braves know a thing or two about that, and I talked to quite a few Braves about it, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later on in the show. But for Matt Olson, multi-home run game on Saturday, another home run on Sunday, 25 home runs, was leading Major League Baseball a little bit earlier on. I'll go ahead and pull up the leaderboard since I can. Uh, as far as home run leaders in all of baseball, yep, Shohei Otani, 25, Matt Olson, 25. You got Pete Alonso at 24, Luis Robert, and our old friend Jorge Soler at 21. That's the top five home run hitters in Major League Baseball. 
You look at most RBI in the National League. You got Matt Olson at 60. Ozzie Albies at 55. I mean, Matt had a huge series against Cincinnati. It's just, if you were looking for, yeah, where is Matt Olson in the midst of hitting with runners on, producing runs, doing the things he needs to do? He is, not that it should be surprising because he's a run producer. But Matt Olson is just doing his thing in the middle of the order for the Braves. And you certainly need that. I thought Austin Riley started to show some signs of coming through, doing some big things for this club. And, you know, he's shifted back into that number three spot of the order after his rut that he was in earlier this year. You can't talk about Matt Olson without talking about Ozzie Albies in the two spot. Both of these guys have come up with big hits and big home runs in their new spots in the batting order. And when Ozzie Albies is right from the left side, which he has been over the past month at least, I mean, he started slowly from the left side, but now he has found himself swinging a hot bat. That was a pretty good move for the Braves to switch those two men in the batting order, or at least move Olsen down and move Ozzie up. You got that switch hitter that does what he does from the right side, also swinging it well from the left side when he needs to. It's made a big difference, I think, for this lineup. And it's become, you know, it's already multidimensional, but it's kind of gone supernova. When you consider Ronald Lacuna Jr. is the guy setting the tone for this, and all he's doing is putting together an MVP season. Uh, Ronald Lacuna Jr. has been compared a lot with Eric Davis. Eric Davis, formerly of the Cincinnati Reds, had a little season in 1987 that I've brought up for about a month and a half because I've been doing the 40-40 tracker on Twitter, again, at Grant McCauley. That's where you can find it. Anytime a home run's hit or a base is stolen by Ronald Lacuna Jr., I'm going to update that tracker. And right now he's on pace for, I believe, 35 home runs and about 70 stolen bases. It's just ridiculous to see what this guy's doing and then look through the pace because we're not talking about, okay, well, that's cute. You're doing a tracker. It's two weeks into the season. He's got two home runs and six steals. Call us when it gets interesting. But that was the whole point of doing this tracker. I just had this feeling like this was going to be a special year for a player who came out feeling like he had something to prove. So I'll bring up Eric Davis because he is one of two players in baseball history with a 30-homer, 50-stolen base season. Ronald more than on pace for both of those numbers. Eric Davis, formerly of the Cincinnati Reds, I think is one of the, and I saw this come up again this week on Twitter, who is one player or one athlete that you would love to see be healthy for their whole career? And Eric Davis is always my answer, and Bo Jackson is my second answer. A lot of people say, well, King Griffey Jr. and Mickey Mantle, well, those guys got to the Hall of Fame. Would I love to have seen them maybe healthier? I mean, gosh, the last four or five years, you could put Mike Trout on the list. I'd love to see him be healthy. Clayton Kershaw, there's a whole bunch, and this just you know rattling it off. But Eric Davis was the last Cincinnati Red to hit for the cycle before a gentleman named Ellie De La Cruz did so in the opener of this series. And De La Cruz is a name I think you're going to hear a lot of, not just on the show here this week, next week, week from now, month from now, maybe years from now. Uh, it's just there's you've got to be excited if you're Cincinnati. And you've got to be excited if you're baseball because you love seeing these players come up that can just do it all. And De La Cruz can do it all. Well, a guy that's seen a lot of things in Cincinnati is Joey Votto, first baseman, all-star, veteran, just came off the injured list for the Reds. Jumping back into their lineup, had a big hit, uh, a couple of home runs, actually, in the opener of the series. And they were talking about the 12-game winning streak. Reporters were asking him just, what is this version of Reds baseball? How does it rank against some of the others you've seen, the successes that you've had during your career in Cincinnati? And obviously, it's been a while since the Reds have won the World Series, and Votto hasn't had that experience yet. But he was basically just heaping praise on what this young and exciting, aggressive Reds team is doing on the bases, up and down the lineup, just some of these young guys that have jumped in. And De La Cruz, yeah, I mean, he's going to check all the boxes. Let's hear Joey Votto talking a little bit about Mr. De La Cruz and another guy that was on display during the series, Ronald Lacuna Jr., because I think the comparisons to these two guys, uh, Joey Votto, myself, whoever, we're not going to be the only ones making it, but it's a pretty glowing remark when you think about putting a player just up to the big leagues 
alongside one who's really putting it all together this year. Here's Joey Votto. When I put my baseball fan hat on, it's the version of baseball that I think I'd love to show up to. And the Braves on the other side have some similarities. I mean, they're enjoyable to watch. Acuna, I told today uh, that he's my favorite major league player. And um, I tell you what, with each game, Ellie is giving a run for that crown because he is... I've never seen anything even remotely close to this. And I think that when you see him play and when you watch, clearly, I mean, you're going to get a firsthand look if you're Joey Votto with what Ellie De La Cruz is doing to prepare himself for the games, what he does in the games. Some guys, it just looks different when they do it. It sounds different coming off the bat. They run the bases with kind of a reckless abandon and a speed that a lot of other players would love to have. There are a lot of similarities, I think, between De La Cruz and Ronald Acuna Jr. So not surprising to hear that kind of comparison coming in. Joey Votto joins a list that includes, I know, Mike Trout saying that Ronald Acuna Jr. is maybe my favorite or most exciting baseball player to watch. I think that's a pretty good list to be on for four-time All-Star Ronald Acuna Jr., who is heading to Seattle after being the top vote-getter in Major League Baseball. Pretty cool story we'll get into a little bit more later on. Far Sunday's lineup for the Atlanta Braves in that 7-6 win over the Cincinnati Reds. It was great to see Sean Murphy back in there. Sean had been out for the better part of a week. He did have one pinch-hitting appearance, which started to give you hope that he was going to avoid the injured list with that hamstring strain or that mild hamstring discomfort or inflammation, as the Braves were calling it. That cropped up uh, last weekend at home on Saturday as he hit a what would have been a double off the wall or an extra base hit. Pulled up at first, had to take himself out of the game, and then you just kind of worried. Oh, how long are we going to be without Sean Murphy? As it turned out, he did miss a handful of games, but he was able to get back in there, got the start, was behind the plate for Charlie Morton. Yeah, he'll probably take it easy a little bit on the base pads. He's not a speed merchant. But that probably saved him being able to make at least three more starts, maybe, uh, appear in four more games if you want to include the pinch hit opportunity he had against the Phillies the other day as well. But that's a bullet dodged for a club that has not been able to dodge as many bullets as they would like when it comes to injuries this year. Because and the list is long and distinguished, and many of them have returned, and some of them the Braves are going to need back if they want to get where they want to get, I think, especially when it comes to this rotation. Another great thing, though, that happened on this road trip, talked a little bit about it at the top of the show, seeing what Spencer Strider was able to do against the Philadelphia Phillies. The velocity was up. Uh, I think he was more aggressive. I think he executed his pitches better, and I think that he recognized some adjustments that could be made. And I don't always take the entire postgame audio and just sit there thinking, okay, well, what's the next question? What's the next question? Because I want to know what was different and what was going on. Well, let me let you hear from Spencer Strider. Following his start against Philadelphia, he did allow eight hits, but no walks, not a lot of extra base hits, no home runs, only one run allowed and nine strikeouts. He just looked like Spencer Strider again. What went into that? Let's hear from the Braves right-hander. You know, overall, command is important. Um, you know, I think throwing with intensity and expecting good outcomes and, and just trying to be positive and, and competing regardless of what the situation is. You know, they got some guys on base and, and taking really good at-bats. And I mean, I think I faced them like seven times or something like that. So, you know, they're familiar with me and and I've got to be better every time I face them. And, you know, they made it hard tonight. So, you know, that's where mixing in the off-speed, moving the fastball around was, was important. And I uh, give credit to Travis for that. Looked a little different than the one in Detroit. Did you feel like you were just a little more aggressive or attacking more? Did it feel like that? Yeah, I think so. Like I said, expecting good outcomes is important, um, especially when you get, they get guys on and, and, you know, we're in big situations. So could try to focus on the next pitch more so than anything and, and just keep my focus there. And uh, trust Travis, and, and like I said, he called a really good game, kept them off balance for the most part, and um, we were able to limit the, the contact to you know singles and a couple of doubles, so you know that's good. Did the mechanics feel a little bit better tonight? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think it's a combination of just sort of relaxing and, and not trying to force anything, and, and also being committed to executing. 
hitting the glove and you know, kind of sticking to my strengths. So, you know, I'm going to have bad outings. I'm going to have good outings. And so it's just a matter of trying to adjust from each one and, and try to get better over the long run. Concerned at all with the last few starts with Velo at all? Did that even? No. I mean, yeah, it was exactly this time last year that my Velo was at its lowest average of the season. So it's kind of that point in the year where um, you're starting to feel some fatigue and you need to make adjustments. And um, it speaks to the commitment of guys that can kind of stick through this rough patch, any rough patch really, and a tendency sometimes to start changing things and panic, and you can't do that. So unfortunately, I've got a lot of guys around me that have been through stuff and, and uh, have struggled and have come out of it, better pitchers and better players. So um, try to listen to them and then stay committed to what I'm doing. As you were working over the last few weeks, who were a couple of the people that told you something that might have been enlightening to you or helped you particularly? My wife, for one. You know, this is a woman who didn't know how many strikes were in a strikeout a few years ago, so she's come a long way. When she says something about baseball, I listen, and she did, and um, so that was helpful, and, and Cranny kind of echoed that message, and he and I sat down, had a good long talk a couple of days ago, and that was very beneficial, and um, yeah, you know, I think everybody wants to help, and they want, uh, you know, they see things, and I, I value input, and sometimes too much. And so um, you know, I like to feel like I have everything at my disposal and I can learn from everything that's around me and um, you can get to the paralysis by analysis very quickly. So, um, you know, trying to figure out who you trust and what, what's meaningful and what I can actually take away from things people say is important. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, like I said, you're going to have bad outings, you're going to have bad stretches. I think it's how you learn from them and how you bounce back that, that matters. What was your wife's message? Her message was don't listen to everybody that tells you something. So, um, yeah, and, and that's... Um, Coming from her, that means a lot. So she usually knows what she's talking about. For all the success you have had against the Phillies, when you come in, they're playing highlights from the from game three on this video board and things like that. Is it hard to come in here at all? To no, put that away? not really. I mean, you know, last year's last year. So the good and the bad. I don't really pay too much attention to what's on the scoreboard wherever I'm at. So, you know, if anything, it's nice to play somewhere where people are engaged and uh, the other team is good. And, um, you know, I kind of like facing a familiar team, familiar opponent. I think it is a challenge and it kind of forces me to to lock into uh, my strengths and, and executing and keeping things simple, and I think that's what I needed. So, um, so yeah, it's a good win for us. Just a little extra motivation, though, maybe. No, I mean, I, I, I want to beat everybody. You know, I dislike every opponent <laughs> equally. Um, you know, no, no offense to them, but, you know, that's kind of how you got to play the game, in my opinion. If you're not wearing my jersey, then, you know, we're fighting for food. That's kind of how it goes. I think that might be one of the quotes of the year. If you're not wearing my jersey, we're fighting for food, and I dislike all my opponents equally. I mean, that is the pragmatic Spencer Strider. I mean, he's a guy that was incredibly, I think, self-reflective about the struggles and, and really taking himself to task. He knew he was going to make those adjustments. little note for Spencer Strider in that start against the Philadelphia Phillies. He became just the second pitcher in his first 35 starts in the history of baseball, joining Doc Gooden, to have 300 strikeouts across those first 35 starts. Spencer Strider, though, did it in about 50 fewer innings, I believe 53 in the third fewer innings. That's how dominant he has been. When we come back, we're going to talk about the dominance of the Atlanta Braves over the past five, now six seasons. How have they risen to become a perennial powerhouse? And I think the toast of the NL East, or at very least the class of the NL East, well, it's not just what they do on the field, it's what they do behind the scenes. You're going to hear from several Braves about how it is they've created this winning culture and how it has cultivated winning on the field as well. We'll do that next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we round out another weekend of Braves baseball. And 
Take a look at the week to come. We're going to get to that a little bit later because we know that the last couple of weeks for the Braves have been incredibly good. In fact, I would say the month of June has been incredibly good to the Atlanta Braves as they have built a nice lead in the division. One of the things, though, that I think has made the Braves such a good team year over year is not just what they've built on the field, but it's also what they've built behind the scenes. It's what they've built in that clubhouse. It's every man on that roster and the accountability one person to another that is hard to find and certainly hard to fabricate if you're another club. And I don't mean fabricate in the way of like you just make something up. I mean trying to assemble it, trying to put it all together. Think about how many clubs across baseball have gone through some version of a rebuild. We look at some teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates, for example, that have been in a rebuild perpetually. The Oakland Athletics are another one, and they're not going to be in Oakland for very long. Likely as a result, at least in part, of not being able to build a consistent winner year after year. Now, the fingerprints and the authors of what exactly the Braves have put together are many. This is not about one person's vision. It's not about one person's actions or doings. It has had a lot of different contributors to it. And it does start, I think, from a leadership perspective of being able to put a clear plan in place and have somebody go out and execute and bring in the right people. That's where Alex Anthopoulos comes in, and clearly he was handed a team that had had a restocked farm system that was done by the previous administration. John Coppolella, John Hart, the guys that were going out and trying to find these high-profile prospects, some of them maybe buying on the cheap if you're dealing with an injury, or maybe they lost a little bit of their shine, but either way, whether it was drafting, which the Braves did fairly well, whether it was signing international free agents uh, about a decade ago, guys like Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies, That has played a part in this. And then, of course, the trades that you have made, the fact that some of these players in your system, and many of them have, graduated from top prospect status to become stars and contributors for your club. You start to look at this roster and you understand why they are who they are in the standings. We look at it on the field. We're going to go through numbers, and we do on the show time and time again, week after week. You watch a baseball game day after day. You're typically talking about the numbers and what they mean and what the trends are and who is leading the league and all these different things. And the Braves have a lot of league leaders. Their offense as a whole is really a league-leading style of offense. On the pitching side, you've got Max Fried. And even though he's hurt right now, look at what he has done over the course of his career. Look at the emergence of Kyle Wright a year ago. Bringing in a Charlie Morton, a veteran who has seen a lot of different things and can provide a different voice and a different look on that rotation. Then Spencer Strider explodes onto the scene. Once again, a player who graduated from the Braves minor league system and has become a star at the big league level. And we've got another success story in Bryce Elder already this season. Those are just a few, and that's just on the pitching side. I mentioned Ronald Acuna Jr. I mean, it's an MVP candidate. It's not a surprise that the Braves are who they are on the field, I guess is what I'm saying. But what I was interested to talk to about with several Braves over the course of the last few weeks is what makes it so special? to be an Atlanta Brave, to play in Atlanta, to be a part of this team. So I wanted to get a few different voices, some who've been here for the entirety of this five-year run of success that the Braves have had, others who have just kind of come along and fit in and played their part and maybe exceeded any expectation that you could have had of them in some cases. And so I just started with a nice free agent acquisition, and you heard part of this discussion last week. Travis Darno has become, I think, a leader behind the plate for the pitching staff. He, he makes all the contributions you need in the lineup as well. So he's become an all-star and a silver slugger. But for him, talking about what it is that makes the Braves who they are behind the scenes in that clubhouse, I thought was an interesting conversation to have. So take a listen. 
You've been a part of this team since 2020. There have been, you know, obviously baseball, there's different you know, changes, new faces each and every year. But this club seems to have a camaraderie, a consistency, a chemistry, that, uh, probably quite a few nice adjectives that you can describe it as that a lot of other teams would very much like to have. What do you notice or what can you single out about and maybe the leadership that starts from the top of the organization to the coaching staff to also accountability man-to-man here in this clubhouse that makes this such a special place to play? Well, first it starts with double A. He learned that clubhouse environment is the most important thing. Uh, He's told me because when times are bad, if you have a good clubhouse, you're able to recover a lot quicker than if you have a clubhouse full of not so good people. So not only that, he also built a coaching staff who believes in the same thing. They're all great people. They all are in great attitudes all the time. They all understand this game and how there's ups and downs, how it's all about just trying to be the same every single day, get your work done. And... Um, try to win every series and not try to overcomplicate things. And then in the clubhouse, you know, we got a, a good a good mix of people. We got the young guys, the vets. We got people who will uh, lead lead by what they do and what they show. And then we got show leaders who are vocal. So we got a good collective group of good guys who will keep you accountable. Who you can learn from anybody, and it's it's pretty special. And thankful to be a part of it. What do you feel like the tone is that's set from, say, Brian Snitker and his coaching staff? I know you've played for a few different managers and obviously different guys come from different backgrounds and whatnot, but is there something in particular about his style and maybe his belief in his players that really helps translate into the the winning attitude and culture you guys have? He's very calm. He, he gets the best out of each player. He gets you to laugh, doesn't overcomplicate things. Um, he's very open, very straightforward. I think... Uh, it's a great quality in a manager, especially in the big leagues, especially in a team that's won for five years in a row. It's, you know, he, he doesn't try to micromanage. He trusts in his coaches, which is also a rare thing. It's pretty special. He always says hello, always asks how your family's doing, which is another really important thing, and it just makes you feel good all the time. It's He's someone you want to play for and someone you want to lay everything out there for. That's Braves veteran catcher Travis Darno, who I caught up with this past week. A couple of lockers over from him, you'll find a relative newcomer to the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, he's been here for a minute, and yes, the story around his acquisition was one of the biggest storylines we've had in the Braves' run of success because you had to replace a franchise icon. Freddie Freeman is gone. We've had that discussion. Matt Olson is here. The reasons why Matt Olson are here, when you look in the lineup, you're going to get an indication of that on a day-to-day basis. But fitting in with this club, having an opportunity to create a sustainable long-term winner and signing a long-term contract, those are all things and reasons why the Braves invested in Matt Olson. And Matt Olson signed up to be a Brave for a very long time. But when it comes to the leadership and the tone that is set for this team, not only does it start with Alex Anthopoulos, as Travis Darno mentioned, but Inside that clubhouse, in that dugout, on that field, you're going to get a lot from this Braves coaching staff. Here's my conversation with Matt Olson. I know you haven't played for a lot of different clubs and a lot of different managers, but coming over here to the Braves, being in your second year with Brian Snitker and this coaching staff, what kind of consistency did they, I guess, ingrain into this team and the everyday approach? Yeah, I mean, you talk to Snit, he's about as uh, even keel as you can find, so he kind of sets the tone for us. Um, Snit expects you to show up and be ready to do your job that day. I think for guys that are kind of the everyday guys in the lineup, you know you're playing. There's, I think that's a great thing we do here. You can't help the team from the bench, so, um, you know, you show up, you're playing, you know, majority of the time, most of, no matter how you're doing, that next day could be, you know, your day to, to get right if you're not doing well or, or to, you know, carry the team if you're, if you're hot that day or, 
um, and I think he does a great job of, of you know setting the tone of every day's new. We're not going to get up two up, two down. Just keep playing our games and, and see where we're at then. Across the diamond from Matt Olson is Austin Riley, a man who went from a red-hot prospect to fighting for an everyday job to becoming an all-star and helping the Braves win the World Series, and then last year, signing the biggest contract in franchise history. So I wanted to ask Austin Riley, what is so special about being an Atlanta Brave, and what is so special about what these guys have, one man to another, in this clubhouse? And here's what Austin had to say. The leadership from the coaching staff, from Brian Snitker to Ron Washington, Cranny, Sites, whoever it may be, what does that do for this team in terms of helping you guys, I guess, maintain such a steady course that there just don't seem to be highs and lows that ever overtake this club? You know, it starts with, to me, from, from Alex, who he brings in, to Snit, to all of them. I mean, Wash, everybody. I mean, I think everybody kind of has that same mentality of, you know, you're going to go through your ebbs and flows of 162. It's just a matter of, you know, how level-headed you can be through the, all of that. And then, you know, Snit always says, he's like, we're going to come out and play every day and see where we're at at the end of this thing. I think there's something to to be said about that. When you, I feel like sometimes whenever things aren't going so well, you try to fix things versus it's a game of failure. Let's just continue to work every day. You know, you're going to go through those stretches. It's just a matter of how you handle them. I think, you know, keeps you out of them as long as you know other teams or whatever you want to put it on um i just think that there is no panic ever from top to bottom and guys just trust each other this club has been part of something very special in your young career here obviously a lot of years left to be played a lot of other teams spend a lot of money and go out and get a lot of other players to try to build something like the braves have what is it like to be part of this every day i feel very fortunate you know in my short time i've been on some really good teams um and I think, you know, just learning from guys that were here before me, guys like, you know, Freddie, guys like Brian, the guys that have been here when never, there wasn't, you know, good teams, right. Dansby, and just how they carry themselves, how they, you know, approach the game. Um, I feel like you can just learn so much from, from guys like that. And then, you know, just, I don't know, it's, it's God's blessed me. I, I, that's the only thing I can really think about. I just, God's put me in a spot that, you know, very fortunate and, and you know, try and just um, not take it for granted. Austin Riley is one of the many success stories for the Braves. He's a success story for a Braves draftee, a prospect, a guy earning an everyday job and becoming a franchise fixture. But there are guys in that clubhouse that have come from all kinds of different backgrounds, many different countries, different teams, trades, free agent signings, you name it. The Braves have somebody that represents that particular demographic of the world of baseball. Tyler Matzik was pretty much on the scrap heap. He was pitching independent ball. He was trying to get his career back on track after losing his command, his focus, his ability to throw strikes as a pitcher, and dealing with some injuries with the Colorado Rockies. The Braves rolled the dice on him late in the minor league season in 2019. He became a part of the bullpen in 2020, went to the postseason with Atlanta. Then, of course, he was part of the night shift and provided us with one of the best highlights in Braves franchise history, in my humble estimation, I was there at Truist Park when Tyler Matzik was mowing down the Dodgers in Game 6 of the 2021 NLCS. I will never forget that moment. But the path to get to that moment and the ability to rise to that moment, I think it all is kind of born with the culture that the Braves have that helps them win on the field. Here's what Tyler Matzik shared with me about what it is that makes it special to be part of this Atlanta Braves team and how it is they continue to do the things that they do. 
This is a club, what I think is kind of one of the bright notes of this team. You've been around it since, what, 2020. Mm -hmm. You've seen different you know, faces and changes for this team. But one thing that I think a lot of people in baseball recognize is the Braves have built something very special here yeah. with the men inside this clubhouse, with what you guys have done on the field, clearly the successes that you've had. What do you feel leads to that, lends to that? What are some of the aspects of it that make this, A, such a great place to play, and B, the level of camaraderie and accountability that you guys seem to have? We all just enjoy hanging out with each other. That's like the first thing. You know, Alex has done a great job of, you know, finding, uh, you know, I think first off, good people, and then second, good baseball players. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you when you want to hang out with your teammates, you want to um, you, you want to win for your teammates, you tend to go out there and do just a little bit more than you could possibly think you could do. And, um, you know, I think that that brotherhood, that camaraderie that we have has allowed us all to perform better on the field. and. And we got a good good thing going because of it. A big part of that clearly can be from the trend or the tone that's set, not just from the Alex Anthopoulos, you know, higher upside, but also the coaching staff here. Mm -hmm. A lot of experience in baseball here. And I think that, you know, from a guidance standpoint, that has to be a, a big, not even an X factor for this team, but a big factor for this team. Yeah, I know. I mean I mean Snit, for example, is a he's a steady rudder man. He keeps us going right where we need to be. Um, points us in the right direction, and, and the guys just start rowing, this kind of thing. So, you know, he doesn't panic. He doesn't stress out. He's very calm. He understands it's a long season. He's been in baseball for so long that he, he kind of keeps that boat going, and he just tells us to row, and we just keep doing what we're doing, and we love doing it. Yeah. Do you feel like that kind of mentality and that temperament lends itself to just about everybody else? If that's the direction the team's headed, it seems like a pretty good one. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and I think it's, um, you know, we're kind of proving that it's working, and we're playing well, and yeah, we just want to keep doing that. Well, I want to wrap up with the man himself, Brian Snitker, who I talked to a couple of weeks ago because I wanted to get his input. And he's not always going to, and in fact, he's never going to tap his chest and you know say that this is what I've done or this is what we've done under my leadership. He is way, way, way too humble for that. And he knows that on a club, everyone is playing a part. And I do think he's a steady hand that guides this ship. And he allows his players to do the things that they are there to do. He gives them the ability to do it, but he expects accountability in the way that they do it. So I wanted to know from his perspective how it is the Braves have built something so special in Atlanta, winning five consecutive National League East titles, winning a World Series, eyeing more in the future. Here's what Snit had to say. A lot of teams spend a lot of time and a lot of money to bring in players and create a culture, a winner, all of those kinds of things. When it comes to your club, with the coaching staff that you have, with where you are, and with, I guess, maybe player accountability, where do you feel like all of those things just kind of maybe come together? Because it just seems like there's such a cohesive unit for this team that's there year after year, even if some of the faces change. You know what, it takes a, a while to create that and, and to get that feeling, which is, is I, I think it counts for a lot of the success that the teams have. And because um, you can now, you can go outside and you don't maybe have to, target that perfect individual because they're going to come in and, and you can get it maybe get a guy that's a little rough around the edges and and bring them into this atmosphere and they'll adapt because it's good they enjoy being on in that in that atmosphere and that, um, and that clubhouse in there so I think it you know starts from I think the core of your guys are just really good people and then their makeup is really good they're doing it for all the right reasons so I hope you enjoyed that look and that insight from inside the Braves clubhouse from several Atlanta Braves from Brian Snitker himself on one of the things that I think we kind of talk about, but maybe gloss over a lot in the name of the numbers. And that is 
these 26 men, whoever they are on the active roster at a time, really, you could probably expand it to the whole 40-man roster and the player development and the executive office and wing at Truist Park. And, of course, that coaching staff. Everybody is, as Tyler Matzik said, all grabbing an oar and rowing in the same direction to make this thing happen. When we come back here on From the Diamond, we will expand our horizons and look at some of the big stories from this week across Major League Baseball. And we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in. It is Hour 2 of From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia Studios in Midtown. Grant McCauley with you as always as we wrap up the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. But we always like to take a look around the rest of Major League Baseball, what I like to call going around the big leagues. Been doing that for a while here on the station. We're going to do it again here this week, and we've got some really, really interesting stories. You can't get to them all. I mean, so much happens over the course of a week, but some things just really catch your attention And one thing that caught my attention was the insanity that was going on in Coors Field between the Los Angeles Angels and the Colorado Rockies. Now, if you saw what the Braves did to the Rockies at Truist Park last week, you had a pretty good idea that Colorado was struggling in the pitching department. Braves scored 40 runs over the course of a four-game series. Ten a night. As they say, that'll play. That'll do it. That'll win you a game most days. The Angels, though, we're not going to settle for just 10 runs in a night. And they pounded out 25 runs, 23 of those in the first three frames, a 13-run inning that followed an eight-run inning. I mean, you get my drift. They just started scoring and didn't want to stop. Although eventually they did, you know, for the final five or so innings of the game, they only scored a couple of runs. So maybe that's a moral victory for the Rockies. They got an actual victory to Colorado here on Sunday. I don't want to jump too far ahead before we actually get to enjoy some of the statistical oddities from last night's game. But wouldn't you know it, the Angels scored 25 runs, one day, then they lose a one-run game to the team that they trounced the day before. That, as they say, is baseball. Uh, Angels had a new franchise record for those runs scored on Saturday with 25 of those. Uh, the team also tied its franchise record for most runs scored in a single inning, 13 of those that happened in the third inning. They got back-to-back-to-back home runs. Mike Trout, Brandon Drury, and Matt Theus all launched solo home runs to begin that inning, and the Angels, they just continued to score. That didn't stop them there. Those were just some of the highlights 13-run innings, those are pretty rare, as the case may be, and you might be well aware of that. I mean, harken back to 2020 when the Braves beat the Marlins 29-9, to and I think that that tied the Major League Baseball modern record for most runs in a game. Texas Rangers, I believe, also scored 29. I don't know what year that was, but putting that aside, the crazy thing about those two games was, if you go look at the box score, and again, I don't have the date for the Rangers win, but if you go look at the one for the Braves, a pitcher got a save in both of those games on a day that their team scored 29 runs because... Heck, why make another pitching change? Just throw the final three innings, protect the lead, get a save. It's that simple, that easy. That's the quirkiness of the save rule. But uh, putting that aside, 13 runs last scored by the Angels back in May of 1997 against the White Sox. And then in September of 1978, I'm going to imagine things looked very different in the world of baseball back then, a 13-run inning against the Texas Rangers. Uh, But only two extra base hits during the 13-run inning back in 1978. So when I do say things look different, How do you score 13 runs with two extra base hits? You get back-to-back-to-back home runs to start an inning, you're sending a pretty simple message, and that's we're content to score here in the mile-high city at Coors Field. That's where you would expect to see a game that is won 25-1, and that's what the Angels did. They got five runs batted in from David Fletcher. Mickey Moniak, Hunter Renfro, and Brandon Drury all had four runs knocked in apiece. Moniak, who was a former number one overall pick, was a Phillies farmhand just trying to 
revive his career, really just get his career off the ground in Los Angeles. He's been playing pretty well. He had a five-hit game in this one, so a highlight for his young career. And the Angels have managed to push themselves into relevancy this year, and that's a pretty important thing to do because think about it. You know, you've got Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, but for how much longer do you have those two guys? Because the Shohei Otani free agent experience might be about as riveting as the Shohei Otani baseball experience is over the course of 162. It could be pretty crazy. But that box score, just looking at that one, go pull it up. 25-1, to 1, Angels beat the Rockies. In that particular game, well, I thought this was pretty fascinating, uh, right after the game, but I guess the conversations had to happen during the game. The Rockies and the Angels swung a trade. Mike Mostakis, the veteran infielder, longtime Kansas City Royal, also played with the Reds, was cut loose actually by Cincinnati back in spring training, despite the fact he was owed $22 million. Caught on with Colorado. We saw him here in Atlanta not long ago. Just a veteran infield piece. Well, the Angels decided we'd like to have another veteran infield piece. So after getting Eduardo Escobar from the New York Mets in a trade, they swung a trade for Mike Mostakis. They're going to try to mix him in and help fix some of their infield problems. They've got Anthony Rendon on the injured list. Gio Urshela, I think, is going to miss the rest of the season. He has a broken pelvis. So a couple of third basemen that you're missing. Jared Walsh also was uh, sent down to AAA. He was on the road back from thoracic outlet surgery. Uh, He was batting just 119 this year, and that's not going to get it done. So uh, just getting a couple of veterans. Angels trying to just beef it up a little bit on the infield and you know, help keep themselves well above 500. They were 41 and 36, I believe, as of the close of their 25 to 1 shellacking. So 41 and 37 by some simple math after today's loss. Not too often do you see a guy get traded from one team to another while they're playing one another and they just walk over to the other clubhouse and suit up for the other team the very next day. That's the kind of thing you hear about in spring training, not the kind of thing you hear about so much in the regular season. Uh, speaking of teams that we're going to get into a lot here on From the Diamond in just a little bit when I'm joined by Matt Snyder of CBS Sports, the St. Louis Cardinals are not the team that most people, including the Cardinals, thought they were going to be this year. Only four teams have a worse winning percentage than the Cardinals, who are barely over the 400 mark. And this was a club a lot of, of, of uh, I would say, pundits or projection systems would have had at least finishing in the top two in the National League Central and pushing for one of those wildcard berths in the expanded playoffs. but. 13 games under 500, four games behind the Pittsburgh Pirates just to get to fourth place in that division. That should tell you a lot about the Reds' 12-game winning streak, how much that changed things. The Pirates, by the way, playing better. Brewers and Cubs kind of treading water. The Cardinals, in the last 25 years, I believe, they've only had two losing seasons, counting this one as one of them. They just don't have this problem. The Cardinals typically are going to play 500 or better baseball. You're usually going to find them in October. And sometimes you run into them in October and you really wish you hadn't. And the Braves could say that a couple of times. Once at least in 2012, another time in 2019. John Mazalik, though, the uh, GM of the Cardinals, is starting to, I think, come around to the fact of we got to do something, whether that's some buying to fix this team around the trade deadline, which if you're this far under 500, I don't know why you'd be spending prospect capital on that. Or we're going to have to kind of batten down the hatches and, as the kids say, take an L on this one because – The Cardinals have taken too many L's thus far this year to make you feel like, I think, comfortably, they can come back and even get in the wild card picture. They're 11 games out of the wild card, and we're not even into July. I mean, this has just been a mess for them. So they've got a whole bunch of different pitching issues that have been going on. Uh, Jack Flaherty and Jordan Montgomery are going to be free agents. Adam Wainwright's going to retire. Steven Matz has been terrible. They just don't have a lot to write home about. And when you have no good pitching, and an offense that is pretty anemic on the road, despite the fact you got MVP Paul Goldschmidt and another franchise cornerstone and Nolan Arenado, who when we played the clip last week, he said, look, we can't talk about this being a bad stretch. 
this is just kind of what we've been all year long. And so they're going to have to accept that. So I don't know how Cardinals fans are going to react to not rebuilding, but at the very least they're going to have to hit that reset button and start looking at 2024. They're going to need to get more out of Wilson Contreras, most certainly. Uh, you got Jordan Walker, a very nice slugging prospect who could get some time to turn himself into a more of a battle-tested major leaguer moving forward. Lars Newtbar is a pretty nice young player, but this season, it, in short, has been a complete mess with the Cardinals. And you just don't hear St. Louis thinking about being sellers at the trade deadline too often, and you certainly don't see him this far below 500. It has been a long, long time since that has happened again. Matt Snyder of CBS Sports is going to join me in just a few minutes to talk a little bit more about the craziness of the National League Central. Meanwhile, over in the American League again, Aaron Judge revealed that he actually tore a ligament in his toe when he crashed into the wall at Dodger Stadium. Initially, the team had called it a sprain. Clearly, he landed on the injured list. The Yankees and Judge are hopeful that he returns this year. That's the kind of headline that I think if you're a Yankees fan, you're thinking, whoa, wait, what? Was it on the table that he's not going to be back this year? And apparently, it is. Because Judge's toe injury uh, may be a lot worse than was let on initially because he did not admit that he had torn the ligament crashing through that wall. That was back on June the 4th. He was placed on the injured list a couple of days later, still has pain in his foot while trying to walk, and just doesn't know if he's going to play again this season. Declined to give reporters any kind of timeline for his return. He said, there's just no need. I've got to get better and then get back out there. I don't think too many people have torn a ligament in their toe. If it was a quad, we'd have a better answer, an oblique, a hamstring, so on and so forth. We'd have answers and a timeline for that. How unique this injury is and it being my back foot, which I push off of and run off of, it's a tough spot, end quote. That's Aaron Judge. Well, to double down on that, Aaron Boone, the manager of the Yankees, also refused to give a timeline, but then he kind of had the cryptic quote that people were kind of running with when asked if he could say if Judge is going to play again this year. He said, um, yeah, that's an absolute, and I can't say that about anyone. Well, if you wanted to make the back page and maybe the front page of every New York sports page with one quote, you're probably able to do that with that. Uh, Aaron Judge had 19 home runs, batting 291 before the injury. Just looked like he was picking up where he left off from his 62 homer season a year ago. The Yankees, meanwhile, well under 500 in the 27, I believe now, 28 games without Aaron Judge. Had lost six of their last eight heading into the weekend uh, when all these quotes came out. So they've been kind of a mess. The Yankees, for their part, though, after all of this broke, they were nice enough to put out a clarification. Look, it's not any worse than it was before. It's a semantics thing because the Yankees say sprains are tears. You know, Go WebMD yourself. Go Google it. Go look for it. Yes, yes, they are, technically. So I guess thanks for that. But the fact that you can't get a timeline on when Judge could be back or will be back, if he'll be back, not the greatest thing in the world. Also in the American League East, Wander Franco, one of the great young players in the game, having a little bit of a hard time this year with the old emotional scale. And the Rays decided to give him a couple days off to cool off. According to Kevin Cash, they hope that the young shortstop is going to learn to grow from this disciplinary benching. He got it because he was not really regulating the emotions and addressing his teammates, I guess, in a respectful manner. And look, this game is hard. And this game is frustrating. This game's emotional. Uh, among the known issues, according to the Tampa Bay Times, verbal altercations with teammates, not hustling in some at-bats and in the field, and excessive reactions to bad results, such as slamming bats and throwing things. And yeah, that'll get the attention. I think about Chris Johnson of the Braves. He just would get a little bit too worked up at times. And at one point, he decided he was going to let off some steam and slam some things in the dugout, slammed a helmet, it bounced up, hit Terry Pendleton. The TV cameras caught it. I mean, you had two guys, not coming to blows, but getting very heated in the dugout because people are ready to just say, look, everybody fails at some point, knock it off, figure out a way to regulate it. I don't want to be hit with your equipment because you can't figure out how to deal with a bat at bat. So uh, if Franco's learning this at 22, maybe he's ahead of the game. He did not apologize to his teammates or address the group 
altogether. Maybe he will at some point, he said. Maybe the apology is just not necessary uh, as of yet. Before we get out of here, MLB clubs and the commissioner are facing a federal age discrimination lawsuit brought on by former scouts who said they were blacklisted by Major League Baseball and that their jobs were being systematically, I guess, eliminated because analytics were taking away the need for scouts. They used to be, I think, the lifeblood of most organizations. Well, now clubs feel like they can do it a little bit more efficiently. And there's a lawsuit by scouts that say, hey, we would like to have the opportunity to continue our careers. A lot of them, though, over the age of 60. So you can understand how an ageism suit is something that no league or no company wants. But Major League Baseball has got one of those on its hands. That'll wrap things up. That's about all I can get to inside this segment. I told you there's a lot going on in Major League Baseball this week. We'll get to more of it, of course, later on on the show and every week. We'll take that look around the big leagues. But when we come back, we're going to look at the National League Central. It's been a mess this year. Somebody's got to win it. I'm going to ask Matt Snyder of CBS Sports if he can help make some sense of it for me. That comes up next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We are continuing our look around the big leagues as we put our eyes on a division that, well, I think it's wide open. I mean, the National League East, it's the Braves and then a sizable gap and a bunch of clubs that are going to be chasing Atlanta, I think, through the summer. That is not the case in the National League Central, where if you came into the season with an idea of how this thing was going to play out, well, I think you and most of us would probably be wrong at this point. And sometimes being wrong is a good sometimes being thing because it gives us a much more interesting storyline. I want to bring in Matt Snyder of CBS Sports to help me break down what exactly is going on in the NL Central. You've had the Red Hot Pirates to start the year. They've faded a little bit. you got the Red Hot Cincinnati Reds right now. The Braves got a first-hand look at that team. But the Brewers and, of course, the Cardinals, even the Cubs, they've underperformed what you would have expected in this 2023 season. So, Matt, I guess I just throw all that out there to say this is an NL Central that I could not have predicted. And if I had, I would have been very, very incorrect. Yeah, heading into the year, I picked the Brewers to win the division, and I think I was in the minority. Most people thought the Cardinals were going to win. People thought, I think, maybe the Cubs would be interesting, even if maybe closer to mediocre, but then nobody thought the Pirates or Reds would be involved. No. And it's definitely a bad division. Like, it's not as bad as the AL Central. Not even close, actually. The AL Central is way worse. But a lot of it is the Brewers let these teams hang around. The Cardinals were so bad. The Cubs didn't take advantage, Mm -hmm. left the door open, and then the Reds got really, really hot and stormed through the gates. But I think that being close enough to the halfway point in the season, you have to think there's a chance this would be a four-team race going to the end, maybe even all five teams. That could be fun, even if it's only a race to do, what, 83, 84 wins. It could still be fun. It can be, and those 84, 85 wins, they could get you into the postseason, which at least one of these clubs is hoping to punch that ticket, and mathematically or otherwise, they're going to. Somebody has to win this division. This was kind of the joke I had about the Central, not so much in the National League last year, but the American League Central and for a second straight year, and maybe that's yeah. a topic for another time. But somebody has to win it. We just got to figure out who wants it so bad. I'll call it a topsy-turvy NL Central kind of race. And there have been a couple surprise stories you mentioned already in the Central early on. The Pirates kind of storming out of the gate to take over first place. Didn't have that on my NL Central bingo card. And we'll talk a little bit later about, I think, the Cincinnati Reds. But I, I feel like the Pirates, as much as anybody, I know the what the Reds are doing right now is a high-water mark for them in recent years. But 
who had the Pittsburgh Pirates having any hold on first place beyond maybe the first three days of the season? Yeah, nobody. Well, it was funny. They started 20-8. and eight. You know, I think they kind of treaded water for a little bit. Then they got hot for a second. And Ben Sherrington, the general manager, was on a radio show. And somebody said, you know, every team has their internal projections. Of course. We'll see projections on like fan graphs and baseball perspectives. And we have our own on CBS with Sportsline. They said, did your internal projections have you anywhere close to the top? And he was honest. And he was like, no, not even close. We didn't even think we were close. We would be this good. And that's the thing is they're not. They started 20 and 8. And if you look at their record now and subtract the 20 and 8 since then, they've been one of the worst teams in baseball. I believe only the Royals and A's have been worse since then. So the funny thing is, when I said this is probably a four team race, maybe a five, the one team I was thinking of cutting out would be the Pirates. I think that by the end of the year, the Pirates are probably not going to be in the race because they're just not good enough to hang in there. I do think the other four teams probably are good enough it doesn't mean they're good but they're good enough i don't think the pirates are yeah i mean requisite to what else is happening in the division good enough to hang around 500 is good enough to be in the hunt heading into late (laughs) august and september and i'm just i'm real curious what the trade deadline is going to look like and you mentioned the real hot start of the pirates i think it's something that at the very least it probably saved them from being a guaranteed 100 loss team which they really felt like when they came into spring training I don't know if that's a moral victory or anything else for Ben Sherrington and company, but there does look like there's some progress and maybe getting O'Neill Cruz back a little bit later this year. will give them a second or third wind at this point. We'll kind of see how it goes. But right now, the hot team in this division is the Cincinnati Reds. They have gone on a long winning streak. They have pushed their way into first place and they have done it with an influx or an infusion of one of the best young talents in the game and Ellie De La Cruz. But overall, if it's more than just one player, what has changed yeah. for this team that has taken them from being kind of an, another also ran in this division to a team that could at least look around the clubhouse right now and say, hey, why not us? Yeah, the youth movement, it's a big part of it. And it wasn't just De La Cruz. I mean, the path was paved for him with other youngsters like Spencer Steer, who nobody really thought was going to have this kind of a breakout season. Matt McClain coming up, highly touted prospect. He's been excellent, maybe even better on a per-game basis in terms of actual production than De La Cruz. But come on, I mean, De La Cruz is amazing. He's like Mm -hmm. the next version of O'Neal Cruz. And this player that's just a total freak of nature that can do anything and everything and and make you drop your jaw on a daily basis. The first home run he hit was almost out of Great American Ballpark. Then you'll see plays like him on a what should be a routine grounder to first on the pit, the first baseman feeding the pitcher. He beats throws. I, mm-hmm. I mean, he does everything, and it's amazing. But it's that youth movement along with talent in the rotation, Hunter Green, who just went on the, the IL. But then they brought up Abbott, and Abbott's been amazing at the back end of the bullpen. Alexis Diaz, Edwin's brother. You know, yeah. the big news heading into the year was Edwin Diaz going down in the World Baseball Classic. But Alexis is one of the best closers in baseball. They've just had a lot of things go right for them. Maybe we wouldn't have noticed as much in other divisions. Obviously, the winning streak itself is such a high number we would have noticed. But when you're in one of the centrals and you can make that kind of noise in a small sample, you can jump right up into first place, and that's what happened. And you get deep enough into the season, and it can take on a life of its own. Baseball is such a mental game. You play every single day. It's a grind mentally as well as physically. I always go back to Crash Davis when he says, if you think that's why you're winning, then you are. Whatever they've got going on, they believe that's why they're winning, and then that means they are. And I that's why I think that they're probably going to continue to be a contender. Yeah, and I think Ellie De La Cruz, to talk about him for a moment, I mean, down here in Atlanta, there's one player that gets talked about as a game changer in just about every facet of the game because he's a five-tool guy, and that's Ronald Acuna Jr. 
I've heard quite a few people just around baseball say, yeah, this De La Cruz is an exciting player like Ronald Acuna Jr. If that's a comp that you're getting, number one, I try to be real careful with comps because it yeah. puts a big expectation <laughs> on a player. But if that's what you're getting based on the tools, I think it's easy to see why everyone's excited about what De La Cruz brings. But let me ask you kind of the obvious question. I mean, we lay all of these things out for Cincinnati about what's going right and why they think they're winning. And if, in fact, that's what's making it happen, then maybe it is. Is this sustainable, do you think, for this club? Because I think what they do with a winning streak like this and the time that they do it is they may be looking to be buyers rather than sellers because the path to the postseason is right out in front of them. They just have to kind of try to find a way to control their own destiny. Well, it depends on the is it sustainable question. Like, is it sustainable to win every single day? (laughs) Obviously (laughs) not. Um, But if you look at, like, could they be 84 and 78? Yeah. I, yeah. I think they could okay, they could do that. They could play around 500 ball the rest of the year. I don't think they could win 90 or anything like that, but you know they could win 84 and win the division. It will be interesting to see how they they navigate the trade deadline because they have a lot more young talent in the minors that's coming up, and you have to kind of thread the needle there, right? Like yep. I understand giving up some guys to make a run and supplementing the major league talent. I understand wanting to keep some of the minor league talent intact and not like we don't want to go all out and, and sell all that off and then flame out in two games in the postseason yeah. and then not have anything left in the cupboard. It's a fine line to walk because prospects bust a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's you need to kind of figure out a way how to, like I said, how to navigate that. And sticking in the division, I kind of think about the Cubs 2015 through 2017. It seems like Theo Epstein did everything right right there. It's, you know, which guys do you sell? Which guys do you hold on to? Let's supplement with John Lester or would go out and make a trade. Let's trade for Jake Arrieta and Pedro Strope here. That's kind of the model in that, by the way, also you have to get lucky. Mm -hmm. They did not know Arrieta was going to blow up like that. Yeah. So it's walking that fine line, but also kind of getting lucky and figuring out, okay, we're going to cut bait on Starlin Castro, but we're going to hold on to some of these other guys the Reds are just going to have to decide which ones they want to trade and which ones they want to keep. Yeah, it's the fine line, the balancing act that every general manager has to walk. The Galaxy Antopolis has done a really nice job of it. Yes. We'll see what moves the Reds are able to make and when they decide to make those moves, because timing is as important as anything. But it does at least appear like, for right now, that their time is arriving. Chatting with Matt Snyder of CBS Sports here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the waitfor.com hotline. Uh, A couple of teams that we expected to be in it in the National League Central have spent little or no time at the top and haven't gotten comfortable there as long as they've been there. I want to start with the Milwaukee Brewers, then segue into whatever in the world is going on with the St. Louis Cardinals. But the Brewers have been, I feel like, in neutral for most of the season, but at least they're hanging around. What do you feel like could change their overall trajectory this season? And where do they stand and what has to change, I guess, for them to really get going this year and maybe be that first place team or that team to beat in a division that as of right now is wide open? If I wanted to paint the optimistic picture for them, I don't think it would be that difficult. I mean, they started 18 and nine. Corbin Burns hasn't been Cy Young winner, Corbin Burns. Freddie Peralta has been inconsistent at best. And Brandon Woodruff has been hurt. You could paint the picture that they could get Peralta and Burns right down the stretch and Woodruff comes back and all of a sudden they've got their three aces and that's all they need because they're right toward the top of the division anyway. Offensively, they've just been bad and you could paint the picture that guys like William Contreras and Jesse Winker should be better. Rowdy Tellez should be a Mm -hmm. lot better. 
You could argue that there's still room for Yelich. To, he, he's been a little bit better the last several weeks, but you could argue there's there's more there, even if you don't think he's MVP Yelich. There's probably a little more there. On the downside, man, we're almost halfway through the season. Where's it been for so long? Like the 18 and 9 is a distant memory. They've been mostly bad since then. Yeah. And you don't know how Woodruff's going to be when he comes back from injury. Yeah, on Burns, it's been almost a season now where he's just been inconsistent, sometimes really good, but sometimes not. Peralta, it's been a lot more inconsistent than great in his case. So it's all over the board there. I still think they're probably the best pick to win the division, but it's not by a large margin because I, you just can't count on them. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what they've shown thus far, and they're going to have to correct it. And they do have over half the season left to go to figure that whole thing out, but you know, we'll see what they're able to put together. Uh, I had Dane Perry on the show a few weeks ago now to try to make sense of what was going on with the St. Louis Cardinals. Nolan Arenado said a week ago, you can't call it a bad stretch for this team anymore. So that leads to the very obvious takeaway of, is this who the Cardinals are in 2023? Because we have not seen a Cardinals team this bad, and I can't remember when. Well, yeah, it's they've only had one losing record in the 2000s, and that's one thing we're like, I, I get it. I think it's a great fan base, but I do push back against the best fans in baseball thing of it because <laughs> it's really easy to be amazing fans when your team never has a losing record and is in the race all the time. Yeah, uh, They've started to get booed at home a few times, which is it's kind of jarring just to hear it. As I said earlier, I had the Brewers winning the division, but I can't act like I was so smart because I thought the Cardinals were going to be bad because I still had them second. So I didn't think they were going to be this bad. My concerns were the starting rotation, and that has been a big, big concern. I mean, it's kind of played out like I thought it would with the rotation. And I do wonder, and it's hard for me to say as a Cubs fan, I don't make that a secret. I love Wilson Contreras. But I just wonder about the transition from Yadier Molina to Wilson Contreras behind the plate and how that has affected the pitching. We don't know because, again, the personnel might just be bad. And I do Mm -hmm. think that Wilson was unfairly scapegoated by the front office of all Mm -hmm. people. Right at, you know, what, six weeks into the season after they signed him to a five-year deal. But I do wonder if some of the game planning there has suffered just because they're used to Yadier Molina. That might be part of it. Another thing is offensively, I thought it was going to be one of the best offenses in baseball, and it has been when they're in Bush Stadium, but they have not hit on the road. Overall, that's been an inconsistent offense because of that. So those two things are probably what's driving their issues. They've had a few other things, like they've had a few bullpen meltdowns, but everybody has those. I mean, the Braves with Mentor and Iglesias Mm -hmm. toward the start of the year. So I think it's mostly rotation problems, and I don't know how much they can actually fix that in front of the trade deadline because we don't know how many pitchers are going to be out there. I mean, they're good enough to get back in the race in the Central. We'll see. I could see them winning the Central. I don't think they will because it seems like we've, as I've said on a few other times, like we're almost halfway into the season. Yeah. This kind of seems like this is who the Cardinals are. Like they started 10 and 24 and then they got really hot and then they got bad again. So that little hot stretch in there was the one thing that's been the outlier, not the 10 and 24 start. The outlier's been when they were good. Yeah, and that's what you're starting to hear from players like Nolan Arenado, among others. Like it's not just, oh, really small sample. No, like Mm -mm. at some point, to use the old Bill Parcells, you are what your record says you are. Yeah, they may not be who we thought they would be, but you are (laughs) indeed at the end of the year what your record says you are. And even the Cardinals who have had a nice run of success for a very long period of time, as you pointed out, they're not used to losing. This is quite an adjustment for them for one reason or another or multiple reasons, which it typically is. 
Matt, I appreciate all your time as always. Let people know where they can connect with you and follow your work and anything you might have uh, in the pipeline that you're working on right now. Yeah, cbssports.com, the Major League Baseball tab, MLB at the start of the page. I did an all-fun team that went up on Friday. There will be a few Braves on there that made the list. I'm not speaking for anybody else except myself, and I think it's a fun kind of sports bar exercise. Like, go around and name who's your most fun catcher to watch in the league and go by position. And this week, I'm going to look at possible All-Star Game starters, pitching-wise, that is, because I know it's all about the All-Star balloting right now, which is just the position players. But I wanted to look at guys that could be the starting pitcher for the respective leagues. So that'll be going up Tuesday, I believe. It might get pushed back to Wednesday, but I think Tuesday. Well, always a fun conversation to have around this time of year. Who's going to be starting an all-star game at every different position and on the mound. So we'll see how that all plays out. And of course, we've got a lot of baseball left to be played this season. Hopefully we can get back together and have another baseball chat once we know a little bit more about the Central, the trade deadline, and all the other fun things that are ahead of us. Absolutely. When we come back here on From the Diamond, we will turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves to look at the week to come. And we'll do it next right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more from the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Live from the Kia Studios as we wrap things up for the week for the Atlanta Braves. We'll also be taking a look ahead at what is to come for the Braves as they come on back home after a very good road trip, taking four out of the five games they could play. One was rained away or washed out against the Phillies. That will be made up in September as part of a doubleheader on the 11th of that month, so a little bit later on. Those two teams will, I guess, kind of wrap up that series, but the Braves took the, uh, the abbreviated series sweep up in Philadelphia at Citizens Bank Park to start this road trip, and then, man, what a weekend it was in Cincinnati. Every single game in this series, much as every single game, all season series between these two clubs, decided by one run. I mean, this is a totally different Reds team than we saw back in April, and it's a Reds team that does look like When we talk about the NL Central, as I just got into with Matt Snyder there uh, of CBS Sports, and again, I appreciate his time because we had to go through a lot there in about 15 or so minutes. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, I mean, this is a Reds team that they they really can look around their clubhouse and say, why not us? They keep playing the way they were and playing the Braves as tough as they did this weekend. I mean, that's a big test for a young team, an unproven team, a club that a lot of people coming into the year would have said, yeah, that that team's going to lose 90 games. Well, you may not have to win 90 games to win the National League Central. We'll see how the Reds are able to fare. Uh, Meanwhile, Ron Lacuna Jr. uh, just continued to do some great things on this road trip. I don't think that surprises anyone. Home runs, stolen bases, he's your guy. All-star votes, he's also your guy for those. Over 3 million votes for Ron Lacuna Jr. in Phase 1. 3,082,600. He led all Major League players, and that punched his ticket for his fourth all-star start. Keep in mind, this guy's 25 years old, probably uh, so many more All-Star games to come. And I just had this feeling like it was going to be the year where Ron Lacuna Jr. reestablishes himself. But even I could not have foreseen the kind of stuff that he has done this year. And I wouldn't have guessed that he would outdistance the second most votes in all of Major League Baseball, both AL and NL squads, the overall voting, which was Shohei Otani by nearly 400,000 votes. But both of those guys are going to be heading to the All-Star game in Seattle. Otani will DH for the American League. Acuna will start in right field for the National League. And, of course, it's not just Ronald. I mean, there are several Braves that are looking to make this all-star game and several Braves that are in prime position to do it. You've got Sean Murphy and Orlando Arcia both leading their positions in voting. Matt Olson and Ozzie Albies, as well as Austin Riley, uh, they're all, 
I believe, in second or third place in the voting. In the case of Olsen, I think he's in third place. If anybody watched him play in Cincinnati, maybe he'll garner a few more votes, and I'm sure Braves country will do its part for that. But uh, Orlando Arcia, at the last time I looked at the overall voting results, which I think was when the Acuna announcement came out, had 1.6 million votes, was nearly a million ahead of second-place vote-getter Francisco Lindor of the New York Mets. There was a time not long ago, I'd say about the time he got traded to the Mets, that I would have looked at Francisco Lindor as this franchise player, maybe one of the top five or ten best players in all of Major League Baseball, and I don't think it would have been a stretch whatsoever to say that he was in that discussion. And I remember telling a buddy of mine uh, back in probably 2016, which was when the Indians at that time were going to the World Series uh, before trading him away, that I would look at Lindor if you told me, you can have a player besides Mike Trout to start a Major League Baseball team with. Then, And keeping in mind, this is a couple of years before Ronald Lacuna Jr. came up, so let me go ahead and put that disclaimer out there so people don't think I'm truly crazy. I might have picked Francisco Lindor to start a baseball team with. The Mets certainly picked him to pay $340 million, and he has not been the player that they have thought. Uh, that all aside, though, still, what a story for Orlando Arcia to be the top vote-getter among National League shortstops. I believe maybe all shortstops in Major League Baseball I didn't look as closely at the American League side because – it doesn't have as much to do with this point, but Orlando Arcia leading the way, Sean Murphy leading the way for National League catchers, Matt Olson among the top three in the National League at first base, Ozzie Albies behind Luisa Rise, who is you know, pushing a possible 400 season. Uh, the deeper that he goes into the year with a chance of hanging around in the high 390s or maybe hanging around 400, it's the kind of thing that we just don't see too terribly often in the last 25 or 30 years. I mean, Tony Gwynn hit 394 back in 1994 in this strike year, which is a shame. We'll just never know how that would have played out. It, it Clearly, if nobody's hit 400 since 1941, it would go to tell you that it was going to be difficult to do, even for Tony Gwynn. George Brett batted 390 in 1980. Uh, Rod Carew hit 388 for the Angels one year. I don't remember exactly what year that was. Maybe that was for the Twins. Either way, it was in the 70s. It just You just don't see guys with those kinds of batting averages too often, even hitting 370. I mean, that's that's pretty tough to do. Uh, that all aside, Arise is the top vote-getter among National League second baseman. Ozzie Albies, though, is making a pretty good push with the way the Braves country shows up and likes to uh, stuff the ballot box, which is perfectly permissible in the case of all-star voting. I think Ozzie's got a pretty good chance. Austin Riley, meanwhile, was not far. I think about 100,000 votes behind Nolan Arenado amongst National League third basemen. That's clearly doable uh, for the way that Braves fans vote. And Michael Harris II also moved on to the second phase of voting and I think that's kind of indicative of how much he has turned his season around as well. National League Player of the Week last week. Congratulations to Michael Harris for that. Just really took his season that was underwhelming, to say the least, coming into the month of June. Had trouble staying healthy, staying on the field. Uh, was not getting the results on the field that he wanted, but the, the work was just going on and on and on and on. And I kept talking about it on the show. There's going to be a breakthrough here for Michael Harris II. I did not necessarily expect him to go out and bat about 500 over the course of a week and win one of these weekly awards, but he was capable of doing it. He went out there and, and did it. He continues to pick up base hits, and he just looks like the guy that he was a year ago. He's comfortable running the bases again. He's patrolling center field at that premium elite-level defense that he offers, and he's hitting the ball hard, hitting the ball out of the park, just doing all those things. And I think it's easy to forget sometimes this kid's just 22 years old. I mean, it's, he jumped right from double-A. And made it look easy last year in this game. As I've said many times, it's not easy. Uh, other All-Stars for the Braves, I mean, other All-Star possibilities, it's not just about the position players. I mean, you would think that Spencer Strider, if he's able to get a couple of more good starts under his belt before 
Uh, we get to the Midsummer Classic. That uh, wouldn't you want the Major League strikeout leader on your pitching staff? I would think so. He's nine ahead of Kevin Gossman, the former Brave, as far as Major League strikeout leaders are concerned. 136 punchouts for Spencer Strider this year. Who's to say that he may not have? Let's see if it's June 25th. Three more starts maybe before the All-Star break. My math may not be off or may not be right on that, but at least two more starts. He strikes out eight or ten in both of those starts, rolls in as the uh, Major League strikeout leader. I would think that he would garner consideration for that pitching staff. If he looks more like he did at the start of the year than he did in that little swoon that he had in early June. But the guy that I think is really getting all the attention amongst uh, Braves country as far as completely out of left field, who would have thunk it? kind of category, is Bryce Elder. And all he did against the Philadelphia Phillies and helping the Braves eventually prevail in extra innings for that quick two-game sweep, Spencer Strider took care of the Phillies in game one. Bryce Elder in game two pitched into the eighth inning, shutout ball, outdueled Aaron Nola, lasted longer in the game than Nola did, not that he pitched all that poorly either. But it was just the latest example of Bryce Elder just quietly putting together a great season. Bryce has been among the top four or five in ERA all season long, and I know that that's kind of an old-school stat that a lot of people look at and say, yeah, ERA, nah, who cares? Pitchers wins, who cares? Even it's uh, some folks, I mean, strikeouts are, yeah, they're great, but what else is he doing? I mean, there are a lot of different analytics and numbers that we look at to tell us what's a good starting pitcher. And if you just look at some of the advanced charts, the StatCast page for Bryce Elder, you might think, okay, well, how is he getting by with this? This is not going to work. Uh, this is only going to work for a month or so. But we're three months into the season now, and this guy continues to do this with very few setbacks and just dominate might be a strong word. That's a Spencer Strider adjective, but carve up some lineups. He's certainly done that. So Brian Snitker was asked to kind of sum up what it was that Bryce Elder did against the Philadelphia Phillies, how he looked in that outing, which may have been one of his best of the year, if not his absolute best, and maybe where exactly Bryce Elder fits into this all-star game discussion. Let's hear what the Braves manager had to say about how good this young righty has been. About as good as it gets, I'll tell you that, against this club. No, that stuff was really, really good. That sinker was something else, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, I can't say enough about it. He's a guy who's put together now like half a season of this. Do you think he's somebody who deserves all-star consideration? Absolutely. absolutely. He sure does. What he's done, the body of work, he absolutely should get an all-star nod. We all hear it all the time. How is he doing this? I mean, is there really any way to explain what he's no, doing? I mean, it's not. Like, when you look at that stuff, that's how he's doing it. I mean, he's throwing strikes with that with a really good sinker. The slider's coming. Change. I mean, he's got good stuff. I mean, I don't think it's a mistake that he's doing well. He's got a really good idea of what he's doing. I just think his stuff's that good. Yeah, and I think it is too. And if you've watched him pitch, I think, and then you look at the Savant page or the StatCast page, you might think, where's the disconnect here? I had a conversation with Oral Hershiser when the Dodgers were in town, and he said, hey, I'm just curious. How is Bryce Elder doing this? Because what we're looking at, just preparing for this broadcast, just kind of says, well, is this a smoke and mirrors thing? And I said, it looks like that. But if you watch him pitch, and I don't have to tell Oral Hershiser what it looks like to go pitch. He's got, I think, 216 more big league wins than I do. I said, you'll see it, and it'll translate when you watch how he does it because he lives on the margins of the strike zone as he needs to. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes over the plate. That's going to happen to everybody a time or two. But for the most part, he's able to keep himself on track and execute exactly what makes his arsenal play up. 240 ERA is second in the National League uh, and third, 
Going to make that first now in the National League as Marcus Stroman actually fell behind Bryce Elder. So third in all of baseball is where Bryce Elder is overall in ERA and first in the National League. So National League ERA leader Bryce Elder, sentences I did not have, you know, typed out, ready to go on day one of spring training. Uh, National League or Major League strikeout leader Spencer Strider, you betcha. I had that one written down. Might as well have gotten in gold foil because he just felt like he was going to have that kind of season. But Bryce Elder has been more than just the unsung hero for the Braves and their pitching staff. I think he has been their most consistent pitcher. He has made 15 starts this year, just five wins. I mean, the Braves don't always score a whole bunch of runs while he's in the game. But the Braves are, I believe, 12-3 and in Bryce Elder's starts this year. That'll certainly play. 75 strikeouts across 90 innings. That's missing enough bats for me. And a whip that's just over one, 1.11. If you like symmetry, he's there for you. Eight home runs allowed in 90 innings. That's a perf- perfectly livable rate. That's less than one per nine inning, uh, nine innings. And he just continues to pick up where he left off last year. Or just do what it is that has made him so good. It's just kind of been the Bryce Elder story. Just keep on rolling along. But I would not be surprised if he continues to do, just like I said with Spencer Strider in his last two or three starts before the All-Star break, what he has done to this point, that would be a heck of a story. All-Star Bryce Elder. So, in the words of Pete Alonso, please throw it again. Let's see what exactly happens out there. Uh, We do need to talk about the rotation for a minute before we get out of here because I know while the Braves did go out and have a great series against the Cincinnati Reds, an entertaining series. A couple of the things that we saw, trends that we saw were, and again, it's great American ballpark, so let's not overreact about it. But you didn't get out of the starting rotation what you needed to. Charlie Morton wasn't able to go deep in the game on Sunday. Braves, though, picked up a win. Jared Schuster was not able to go deep into the game on Saturday, but the Braves found a way to win. A.J. Smith-Shawver was staked to a 5-0 lead in game one of the series, and the Braves came up a run short. They lost that one 11-10. It was one of the most wildly entertaining games of the season, regardless of the score. I mean, if you liked entertaining baseball and were thinking you're going to find it in the middle of June, the Reds and the Braves, they put it on you in the first game of the series. I'll still go with that Mets walk-off win with the Ozzie Albies homer and pouring Larry a crown as maybe being more entertaining from a Braves standpoint, but take nothing away from what we saw on that day. But I think some of the questions might start to become – well, did A.J. Smith-Shawver get exposed? Has Jared Schuster done enough to maintain his spot? And I would say the answer to the first question, A.J. Smith-Shawver, you got to look at the opponent. I think you got to look at the ballpark. And I felt like it was a little bit of a baptism by fire with a team on a 12-game winning streak in that park where you hit some balls in the air and it gets up on that jet stream, it's going to leave. Now, what the rest of this rotation could look like over the course of the rest of the year when you start talking about the return of Max Fried, Hopefully to return a Kyle Wright not too terribly long after that, but sometime in the second half. That's an open for debate, open for question. Same thing with Jared Schuster, who I think has been way more good than bad since coming back from Gwinnett in his second stint with his team this year. But the interesting wild card component of all of this to kind of wrap up our rotational discussion and start to wrap up the show as well, how about Michael Soroka? Three consecutive quality starts for Gwinnett since being demoted after that start in Arizona a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now. Tremendous work in his last outing and a doubleheader game, which are seven innings in the minor leagues. He was an out away from throwing a no-hitter a couple of days ago. A season high nine strikeouts. Really seems to have honed the stuff, pounding the strike zone, not giving up hits, picking up strikeouts, missing bats. That sounds like the Mike Soroka, Michael Soroka, that could really help you out if you're the Atlanta Braves. And maybe that was a little bit premature bringing him up because he had a need and he wanted to see if he could fill that need. And he looked okay against Oakland. 
Didn't look great against Arizona, but it's gone back to the minor leagues. And as I full well expected from Michael Soroka, knowing him as long as I have, he's just going to go right back to trying to sharpen the skills and figure out a way to find his way back to Atlanta, and hopefully he will. Coming up this week for the Braves, it'll be the Minnesota Twins for a three-game series that begins on Monday night. Off day on Thursday, then we're going to be wrapping up the month of June as the Miami Marlins will roll into town. So a lot of fun stuff is ahead for Atlanta. Another first-place team rolling in from the American League Central. Somebody's got to win that division. And in the second-place Marlins, we'll get a good look at them. My appreciation, as always, for all of you out there listening to From the Diamond. Hope you will subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure that you join me here each and every Sunday on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. That'll wrap things up for this week. Once again, thank you, Dom. I appreciate all of your help keeping the show on the rails. And thanks for all of you listening. We will catch you next week right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Until then, so long, everyone.